Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, and it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. We're coming this morning to the, the hinge pin of Romans. Two verses that we just read there are really the theme of Romans. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, before we go there, I want to go back to last week. There were two verses that we looked at as we closed last week, and uh, I can't get away from them. I want to just remind you of what we talked about a bit there, and then we're going to move on. These are the verses. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I am under obligation. Did you think about that if you were here last week and you left? Did you think about that obligation that Paul talked about there? Because I really believe that we should feel it. just like Paul felt it. When he talks about there, if you weren't here, the Greeks and barbarians don't, don't take that in ways you shouldn't. Greeks were just those who were wise and learned and cultured. Barbarians were those who weren't as cultured. In other words, what Paul is saying to all people. I'm under obligation to all people, particularly Gentiles, but all people, Jews as well. But Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. But Everyone, I'm, I'm under obligation to everyone, and particularly he felt it of the Romans because he wanted to go to Rome. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. I'm under obligation to preach the gospel. So he couldn't be there in person, so he wrote the book of Romans. He wrote it. Somebody made the observation last week, which was really a good observation. If, if he'd have gotten there when he wanted to, we probably wouldn't have Romans. He wouldn't have had to write to them. We wouldn't have the book of Romans today, which is a good observation, a keen observation. Paul didn't get there when he wanted to, so rather than get there, he did the next best thing. He wrote to them the gospel, and we're going to talk about it. We've talked about Romans being really the most most concentrated book of the gospel in all of the New Testament. But I'm under obligation. Why did Paul feel that so keenly? We talked about it, but he was on, remember, the road to Damascus. He was on his way. As I said last week, I even thought about it, I'll say it again, hell-bent to destroy the church. That's where he was headed. That's That's what he was doing. It's where he was going to root it out wherever he could find it. He was ravaging the church. And God intercepted him on the road to Damascus. He intercepted him. His life was turned upside down. His life was transformed. His eyes were open to the glory of Christ. One he had hated just a moment before that, he now began to see glory in Christ. And the truth of the matter, that's the way it is for all of us. 
That's the way it is for all of us. We are hating him, and God moves upon us and, and brings us to life. Now, it, it may be described different in your life and, and have different chapters in your life, but if you keep going back, you keep pulling, peeling that onion off back, go back far enough, go back far enough, you realize that God was behind all of that. God was behind your conversion to Christ. Just as he was as starkly for Paul on the road to Damascus, it was for you if you're a believer today. God brought you to life. Not because of something in you. I mean, that's what the gospel says. We'll talk about it again today. All of our Righteousness as as filthy rags. We are going to jump into Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. And I said last week, it's going to get really heavy for a while because he gives us a description of our hearts. He gives us a description of all men. But if you're a believer today, God has moved upon your heart just as he moved upon Paul. And that is the root of why we are why we are indebted, why we, in fact, have an obligation to go to all men. And unless you feel like Paul and have an understanding that your conversion was just like his, that there was nothing in you, nothing in you, nothing you did, but God moved upon you to do you won't feel the weight of it. The reason Paul felt this weight is because he knew he had been given grace with no qualifications. Grace. God had poured out his grace upon him. And he knew that if God had poured on it with no qualifications, he needed to go to all other men without qualification, without sorting them out and saying, this group deserves it a little more than this group does. Paul knew he was under obligation to all men. Why? Because of how the grace of God had come to him and he understood it. I think that's why we have such a picture of it in the book of Acts. And the degree to which you understand that and glory in that and realize that, it it puts an obligation on us to not pigeonhole people. God says we are under obligation. Now we're going to move on in Romans. And we look at two verses, really, that I said are the hinge of Romans. The two verses that were read this morning. And and this is the way they work, really. The next three verses, we read 16 and 17 and 18, but this is kind of the way they work. Verse 16, he announces the theme of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is... This is the theme, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. It is the power of God to salvation, the gospel is, to all people. The Jew first and then the Greek. That's the theme of Romans. That's what we are going to see again and again and again in Romans. Verse 17 then is kind of a general exposition of that, what the gospel is. And it says in verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. 
from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And, and what it is doing there is giving a general exposition of what the gospel is, a righteousness from God. And then you go to verse 18, and the rest of the book really, particularly until you get to chapter 12, is, is just support for all of that. Is just building a case for all of that. He's just putting foundation under all that he's just said. So it's not just hanging out there in the air. But you have to just believe it hanging. But you can see why that is true. Why the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Greek. Because in it a righteousness from God is revealed. And he just layer upon layer upon layer lays that foundation under all of that. And the thing that Romans is, is that as you look at this table, as you look to Christ, that what you need to see in him is he is a righteousness that has come from heaven for all who will believe. He is that righteousness. He is. It's outside of us. It's alien to us. But he comes to bring it to us, to give it to us. That is incredibly important to see that. A righteousness from God. That's what opened the, the doors of, of glory for Luther when he saw that. When he saw that that righteousness is not a righteousness by which God is righteous, which condemned him because he knew God was righteous. But it is rather this righteousness it talks about here is a righteousness that God brings for us so that we can have that alien righteousness outside of us given to us. And therefore, be ushered into heaven one day. We'll talk more about that. We'll build on that. But these verses, these verses are are foundational to the book of Romans. The, the song we now we sang at the beginning, the, it's called the Reformation Song. It's a new song. We've sung it a few times here, but listen again to the words that you sang. It says, Through faith alone we come to you. We have no merit that we can claim. Sure that your promises are true, we place our hope in Jesus' name. All through the Old Testament, what does it say? For the sake of your name, O God, forgive me. For the sake of your name, blot out my transgression. goes on to say, in Christ alone we are justified. His righteousness is all our plea. Your law's demands are satisfied. His perfect work has set me free. That's why we can sing those words because of the righteousness that comes to us from heaven in the person of Christ. This morning, what I want us to do now is kind of break those verses down. We're going to be here for a few weeks in these two verses. But today, we just really want to center on the very beginning of verse 16. It says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I want to make some observations of why Paul could say that and why he did say it. Why did Paul say that? Why did he not just say, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes? 
Why does he interject, I am not ashamed of this gospel? I think there's several reasons for that. Several observations, really questions that we, um, it's really an observation, but a question we ask, why, why could Paul say that? So first of all, I think he said it because he had the heart of a shepherd. Paul said that for the sake of shepherding some people in his time, people that were in his life, people that he was working with, if you will, at that particular time. He said it for their sake. I think he said it for Timothy. Because I think Timothy struggled with being ashamed of the gospel. I think he wrestled with that. Why? Because Paul wrote this to him. Therefore, do not be ashamed. Why would he write those words? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He wrote to Timothy, don't be ashamed of the gospel. So Paul writes that for Timothy's sake. In that same book, in 2 Timothy, there was a gentleman, Onesiphorus, who, who also is talked about in the context of being ashamed of the gospel, only in a positive context. If you go over into a bit farther into that text, it says, for he often refreshed me, speaking of him. He often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. Paul was um, a prisoner in Rome, and, and Anisphorus came and refreshed him and helped him. And why could he do that? And what did it say that he did that? He wasn't ashamed of the gospel for which Paul was being imprisoned. He wasn't ashamed of it. He searched out Paul. But by inference, it implicates some others, doesn't it? He wasn't ashamed of me. And he found me. But there must have been some who were ashamed. In fact, much of the Roman church was struggling with this question and this issue. They didn't want to get too close to Paul. It was dangerous. There was a drawing back in the Roman Christians. Only a few were willing to venture out, and it was because, Paul, as Paul described, because they were not ashamed of the gospel. They knew it was the power of God, and they pushed through it. Um, they, were, they were tempted to draw back, and, and one of the temptations that I think comes with the gospel is a temptation to draw back, maybe in big ways like this, your very life may, may be at stake, or maybe in smaller ways, but to somehow draw back. So I think Paul did it for the sake of, of those directly he was dealing with, those he was mentoring, Timothy, Onesiphorus, Roman Christians. But I think also another reason why he writes it is because Paul knew the temptation of it. Now, I'm not saying that Paul gave in to the temptation, but I think he felt the temptation. The reason he writes it is because he knew there was that temptation lurking, because he had experienced that temptation in his life. A temptation to be ashamed. Certainly, one of the things we know that happened to Paul 
it happened again and again and again to him, is that when he preached the gospel, it put him constantly in a bad light. You, you think about that for a minute. Everywhere he went, as he preached the gospel, as he felt this, this obligation to go, not only to Rome, but other places, he, he felt this shame that was cast upon him by those that he came to. He felt that there was a shaming aspect, and there is a shaming aspect of declaring the gospel. It, it comes, and it came to Paul. It came to Paul intensely. If you turn over a couple of books to 2 Corinthians for a minute, let me, let me read some words that he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And it particularly, as you come down to verse 23, you begin to see some of the ramifications of that shaming that came to him. But look at what he writes in verse 16. It says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool, so that I too may boast a little. What he's doing here is defending his apostleship, but what he's also inferring in that is that as he declared the gospel, People tried to shame him. People talked about him as a fool. You're a fool, Paul. They thought he's a fool. He knew that's what people were thinking. If you go down a bit farther, it shows some of the result of that. He says, I'm, I'm talking like a madman. He's talking about defending himself for the sake of the gospel. But he goes on to say um, the, the things that he experienced. He said, with far more labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death, five, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger of river, in danger of robbers, in danger of my own people, in danger of Gentiles, in danger of the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Why? Because of the shame and outright persecution that came with that shame, but it was the shame that constantly bombarded the Apostle Paul. People attempting to try to make him feel ashamed. Now, it's, it's, there's a difference between the shame that comes and what we do with that shame that comes. But what Paul certainly knew is that with the gospel shame would be hurled. Shame would be hurled, and he felt it keenly in his life. That's why he writes, I am not ashamed. I'm not, I'm not giving in to that temptation. I'm not. But he knew that it was a reality. So, Timothy, the church at Rome, Omnistrus, for their sake, because he knew what it was to have shame cast upon him, but also for us, I think. I think Paul writes those words for us, for the church. We need to hear them today. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary in the book of Romans, writes something incredibly insightful. Listen to what he writes. He says this, he says, Why should anybody ever be ashamed of the gospel? 
Do you know anything about this, my friends? It seems to me to be a very important question. And I'm very ready to assert that if you have never known this particular temptation, then it is probably due to the fact, not that you are an exceptionally good Christian, but that your understanding of the Christian message has never been clear. In other words, what he's saying to you, if, if the potential of letting the shame or feeling shame and the temptation to give in it to be ashamed has never had an effect on you, has never been a temptation that you had to push against in your life, then maybe you don't really understand the gospel because that is the effect that it has on the heart of a natural man, a man without Christ. That's why Martin Lloyd-Jones says that. That's why he makes that kind of statement in this particular commentary. He goes on to write this. He says, let me substantiate that. It is never an impressive thing to hear a Christian saying, ever since I believed, I have never been tempted to doubt. I've never been tempted to shame. It is not a good thing to say that. Whether it was actually true in the case of the Apostle Paul or not, in other words, true that he actually was ashamed, which I don't know that he was. He felt the temptation of it or not. It was certainly true, as we already said, of Timothy. And if you read the lives of the saints, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say, you will find that throughout the centuries they have been attacked grievously along this particular line. If you read biography, if you read the lives of those who've gone before us, this temptation is real. And they will talk about the realness of it. The gospel causes a shaming effect to come upon us. And so I think what Lloyd-Jones would say, if, you, if you've never experienced that, one potential possibility is that you don't really understand the gospel. Because it has that effect. We began this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. And, and we read from there. Let's, let's go back there for a moment today. And, and this is what it says as we read it, that the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. What does that mean? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to those who have not put their hope in Christ. It, it is folly. Doesn't, doesn't make any qualification. It's folly to those that are perishing. Now, some may not put it in your face as much as others, but the scripture says it is foolishness to them. And so you can see why, if that's the fact, is in fact the case, that it's folly to those that are perishing, you can see that shame comes. The shaming effect comes upon those you, you start to think about it for a moment. You, you, you begin to put your, yourself in the place of that natural man, of those that are perishing. They, they think a carpenter who lived a life of poverty, died upon a cross, is the savior of the world. Put yourself back in, in those early days of the church, particularly, 
we we get that whole perspective skewed a bit, I think, in America today. Um, partly because I think to to have the label, I've said this before, the label Christian for a long time in America was beneficial, and so many people took on that label of Christian because it was beneficial to have it on your resume, whether whether the reality of of the gospel and and the the real truth of the gospel had taken root in their heart or not. Now that day, I think, is changing. And so what I'm saying today may be much more important for us to hear today. But in the first century, you think about this. Christianity in those early days of the church, the world religions of the day, and here comes a band of Christians, they started to call them, who tell you to follow one who was a carpenter, lived a life of poverty, died on a cross, is the savior of the world and the only savior of the world. That in fact, all of history, all of history is culminated in the coming of that poor carpenter who died on a cross. Just just think about that for a minute. The folly of that it must have been to those of of that day. It doesn't appeal to the natural man's intellect, certainly. The gospel does not appeal to our intellect, our our mental capacities to figure things out and and rationalize the best way to do something. Now, it's not against intellect. I don't, I don't think there's there's no place to 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 poo-poo intellect, but you don't you don't embrace Christianity because of intellect alone. It goes against the glory of natural man to to glory in his own achievement. My my own Goodness, if you will. All of that Christianity comes against. In fact, we're going to jump in, as I said, in Romans, in just a moment, verse 18, a few weeks away, and this is how it's going to start. For the wrath of God is revealed. Not a very popular message. It's not a very popular message to hear that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags as dung and refuge, refuse. The depravity of man is not a popular subject. And when you begin to talk about the depravity of man, to natural man, it arouses antagonism. If, if you really talk about it, uh, if you begin to talk about the wrath of God being stored up, what Romans is going to talk about. It's not going to jump into the love of God there. It's going to talk about start with the wrath of God. Certainly it will come to the love of God, but that's not where it begins. It begins by painting a story of a depraved generation. And you see, you imagine that now in the first century. And this, this, is the only way? Come on. 
One has said this about the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is this, that I am so condemned and so lost and so hopeless that if he, Jesus Christ, had not died for me, I would never know God and I could never be forgiven. I would remain under the wrath of God. It's important for us, I think, to feel the weight of that, to to let that sink into us. It's why Paul says, I'm 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 pushing against this shaming that is coming, which I know is going to come. I know natural man is going to react this way. But I know something else. Alistair Begg, um, some of you listen to him, but Alistair Begg talked about his progression in ministry. He said in the 60s, in the 60s when he was preaching, Unbelieving friends would, would uh, criticize him because they didn't believe the gospel. They would criticize him, probably talk under their breath about him being a fool because they didn't believe the gospel. How could you believe this foolishness? Foolishness of the gospel. He said now in the 90s, as he's wrote this a while back, in the 90s, they criticize him for claiming that there is any truth. And it's worse today than it was in the 90s. The natural man today, the presumption that somehow, somehow there is a truth that transcends all of their truth, transcends all of my truth. One of the things that you hear today, you listen, you listen as you watch the media today, I, I, I noticed in the most recent Supreme Court hearing, the, the terminology is the term, my truth, or her truth, or his truth, as if that truth, his, it's his alone, and it can contradict any other truth, but it's their truth. That's, that's part of the, the outgrowings of this. But, but here now, <coughs> what, what Beg is saying is in the 90s, the audacity to claim any truth at all. In the beginning, didn't believe it. But today, and I think we see that more and more in our culture today, and, and imagine it was the same in that first century, that here comes one who was a carpenter, who lived in abject poverty, died on a cross, is the Savior of the world, is the only Savior of the world. That's what Christianity contends. Think about it this way. We're going to come to the table. Scripture says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. How many unbelievers believe that? Probably not very many. There might, be, there might be some who just believe it, but say, no thanks. But most unbelievers would say, foolishness. Foolishness. Foolishness that there could be only one way to heaven. Foolishness that, 
this religion thinks it's above all other religions in the sense of holding the truth. Foolishness. That doesn't bother me so much. doesn't bother me that the natural man would push against that. I, I think he does. I think overwhelmingly the natural man pushes against that statement. Doesn't, doesn't really, I mean, it bothers me to one degree, but it doesn't surprise me. Scripture says that. It will push against it. But what really bothers me and what should bother us is this part of the question. How many professing Christians believe that today? How many professing Christians who would say, I'm Christian, I'm a Christian, would believe that statement? That bothers me. That troubles me. That, that's what would have troubled the Apostle Paul. But he comes back and he pushes back and he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation, the only power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then the Greek. Paul knew that despite all of the shame that gets hurled, Paul knew despite all of the opposition that would come, Paul knew that despite all the people who would shake their head to think that this group, this small group at that time really, thought they had a corner on the market of the truth, could be right. Paul knew despite all of that, that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It is the gospel that can take one who would want to shame it, as Paul did. Paul was good at shaming the Christians. That's what he did. He healed shame upon them, foolishness upon them, folly upon them, rocks upon them, if you will. But the God, this God, opened up his eyes to see the glory, the glory of this message. And I say to you this morning, young people and old alike, it is folly, and we need to understand that. And what the Christian has come to see is that though the world sees it as folly, it is the power of God to salvation. As you come to the table this morning, that's, that's really what you're declaring. This is the power of God to salvation, and there is no other. There is no other. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as we come to the table this morning. Help us, Lord, to say, as the Apostle Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not, I'm not giving in to the temptation and, and the insults that may get hurled and the foolishness that may be thought of me because I would contend and I would believe and I would hold tight to the fact that Jesus is the only Savior. Lord, we just pray you'll help us. We pray you'll strengthen us and to see the gospel as the power of God that it is in Jesus' name. Amen.
like for those that are going to help us to serve this morning to come. The worship team is going to lead us or as, we, as we come to the table this morning. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he said, this is my body that is given for you. And it is his body that was given for us because it took his death. It took his death that we might have the righteousness of God. So take and hold it and we'll partake together. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share spread of love. 
Jesus became fully man to die. To die because we needed a savior. Take and eat. He is our savior. Again, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink. Every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember, he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So we share in this
Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Drink, but to drink in remembrance of me. Remembrance of what I said. There's the only hope of all of the world is the righteousness that I bring. Take and drink and be grateful. before we go this morning I think it's important to say this the reason that I backed up in those two verses in Romans is because unless you understand those two verses unless you really understand that obligation to go to Greek and non-Greek to go to the whole world with this message There's a danger that you can take a bit of elitism away from what we said about Christianity, that it's only for a certain segment or a certain group. And and then those that would complain and say, you say Christ is the only Savior? Not only would they call you foolish, they'd say you are arrogant. And you would be. You would be. That message is not a message that talks in any shape or form about elitism, about a certain group or a certain nationality or a certain race. That's why Paul said, I'm obligated to go to Greeks and barbarians, to the whole world with this message. And the reason I'm obligated is because it didn't come to me didn't come to me because of anything in me. It came to me by sheer grace. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, first of all, to, to not give in to the folly that's cast, to the accusations that will be made by the natural man. But Lord, let our hearts break Let our hearts break to the degree to just be more determined to go, to go to all of the nations, all of the peoples of the earth with this message, as Paul did. In Jesus' name, amen. Go in God's peace.